Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm the pastor here. We're currently in a series uh, called Learning the Heartbeat of God. We have this big vision for the year. Uh, together with one heart and mind, we're going to be drawing closer to God. And I just, you know, I remember that line in scripture that says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you, recognizing this is a two-way street, right? We make moves and God makes moves and we continue to advance. It's almost kind of this, this romantic dance of us getting to know one another. And ultimately, our goal is that we all learn together how to hear the voice of God, whatever that might mean for each of us and how we've been uniquely wired. But what we wanted to do beforehand is to say, you know, before we know what God says or how he speaks to us, what's his heart? And so this series is just really to answer that question. What is God's heart like? Um, but also, how do we learn God's heart? How do we proactively and practically step into that reality where God's heart is not just a concept or a philosophy that we've picked up on a Sunday morning, but it's something that we're learning to um, invest ourselves in, that we're being saturated with the reality of God. Um, I, I read this amazing quote recently by Dallas Willard. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Think about that. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's not about us not trying, us participating. It is opposed to us earning. And there's a, very, there's a lot of nuance there. If we think that us understanding the heart of God and learning how to hear his voice is about us earning something from him, checking off all the boxes and doing everything right so that he will come through for us, we will miss it. But there are things that we can do to open ourselves to the realities of grace. Even as we spoke last week that Jesus' invitation for us in Matthew 11, he says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And so what we want to do is to, is to learn these practical rhythms that we can establish in our lives, not to earn something from God, but actually for us to receive the truth of who God is. And, and so my kind of main point uh, for us this morning is this, God's heart is to deliver us through the desert to freedom in Him. And we're actually going to be looking at this for a couple of weeks, something kind of around this. What do you do when it doesn't seem like God's coming through for you? What do you do when your expectations of how, what God is supposed to do or how he's supposed to show up in your life maybe don't necessarily seem to happen? What do you do when times get tough? Do you still trust that he is good? Do you still trust the larger narrative of what he's doing in your life? And so today, there's going to be a little bit of talking about what God's real heart is when we find ourselves in those difficult spaces, but also talking about how we can position ourselves to trust above and beyond what we're maybe experiencing in the moment. And we're doing this on the cusp of the season of Lent, as John and Becky were talking about in the announcements on Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and it's the beginning of this Lenten season. And Christians around the world in, in all sorts of denominations and countries are going to be participating in these 40 days of fasting and prayer that are helping us to enter into the Easter season. You know, we are symbolic creatures as human beings. We need 
these rhythms in our lives to help us to walk through the story of Jesus so that we might understand him in newer and deeper ways. And I think this is what's so important to understand what we're about to participate in. The themes of Lent are defined by a deeper move into the presence of God, learning to rely on him over and above our own strength. There's so many practices within the Christian faith that are about us shedding something, letting go of something, in order to take up something else. And the number 40 is a very significant number in Scripture. We see it over and over and over again. Essentially, 40 is the number of humility. 40 is the number of learning how to rely on God. Sometimes 40 feels like the number of humiliation. How many of you just turned 40 recently? <laughs> just kidding, Lisa. <laughs> I'm 35. I'm almost there, okay? We've been, we've been talking about the, uh, the aches and the pains recently. Um, but 40 is this number of learning uh, humility, learning to rely on God. We see uh, Noah and his family are in the ark with the animals for 40 days and 40 nights. We see Moses was in Egypt for 40 years, and he was exiled into the desert on his own terms for 40 years. And then he came back to rescue Israel and took them into the desert for 40 years. We see in the story of Jesus that after his baptism, as he's kind of walking out the story of Israel, um, he's baptized, and then he enters into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the Satan to learn to rely on God or to prove um, the, the truth of who God really is. And, and what happens in those seasons of humility, in the times of 40-ness, is that there's kind of three main questions that are being asked of us in the wilderness period. Does God actually provide all, for all my needs? Does God protect me from the dangers of this world? And does God empower me to actually become more than I thought I could? And if you even look at the story of Jesus in the desert, those are the three things that the Satan is tempting him with. Is, is God really going to provide for you? Does God really protect you? And does God really empower you? Because maybe you could just listen to me and come over to my side and I'll give you everything that God promised. I think that's the challenge for all of us, is that we hear the, the Satan, the spirit of accusation saying, I don't know, it doesn't look like God's really there to protect you or to provide for you or to empower you. Why don't you come over to my side? Why don't you try to do things your own way? And so why does it matter today? Why is it so important for us to have seasons like Lent? Why is it so important for us to be able to name those moments in our own journey? I think because now, more than ever in the entire human story, we are overstimulated and undernourished as a people. How many of you feel that in your bones? We are overstimulated. There is too much information coming at us, and we do not know how to process it. And because of that, we're undernourished. The deepest parts of us, the deepest questions of, of being a human being are not being answered because there's so much noise. There's so much static. I think this even explains why something like Marie Kondo is like this new revolution. You see this every couple years. There's a new theory or philosophy, and it's mostly about cleaning up, right? Her, what's her, her art Netflix special is The Art of Tidying Up, right? working through your closet and all of your stuff. By the way, my Netflix special is going to come out next month. I highly encourage you to see it. It's called The Art of Arranging Things in Right Angles, so it looks like you tidy it up. <laughs> That's how my household works. 
But we always find these moments of awareness like, oh my goodness, yes, the answer is actually to clear space. There's too much stuff. There's too much noise. There's too much static. I can't hear myself. I can't hear the voice of God. And we're, we're addicted to that overstimulation, but it's not tending to the deepest needs of the human soul. The, the, uh, the monk uh, Thomas Merton from the 1960s said this, the greatest need of our time is to clean out the enormous mass of mental and emotional rubbish that clutters our minds. The greatest need of our time is to clean out the space to purge all of the noise, all of the junk that holds us back, that we become addicted to. And so I'm going to pray, uh, and we're going to jump right into this. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here, that you're with us. And Lord, we are on the brink of this new season in the church calendar that may be very foreign to us. It may be an, 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 an understanding of your character, receiving who you are by faith in a way that doesn't feel right. But Lord, I trust that it's a new way for us to step even deeper into the reality of who you are. And so God, as we continue on this journey together this morning, I pray that you keep our hearts open and tender and vulnerable to receive your truth. You keep our ears open to listen to you, to know when you're speaking to us, that you keep our eyes open to be able to see your move in our lives so that we might leave this place with some sort of a, a divine strategy for knowing where you're calling us to in this next season. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so what I want to use today for this journey of understanding the opportunity that God is calling each of us to is to use some of the language that we find in the Old Testament journey. Many of you know that the primary story of the Old Testament is how God rescued a people and gave them back their identity, formed them into the kind of people that could be his ambassadors for the rest of the world to let us really know what God is truly like. And we find this story beginning in Exodus of people who have been oppressed in the place of Egypt, who have had their identities robbed from them, the place of deliverance where God hears the cry of the oppressed but leads them into a desert period of 40 days to learn, to rely on him, to listen to him, and then finally offering them the promised land that becomes the place of fulfillment of everything God said he was going to say and do. And so the journey we're going to go on this morning is that same journey going from Egypt into the wilderness into the promised land. And so there's going to be moments of reflection along the way for you to dialogue a little bit with the Lord, which is why you have um, those sheets of paper in front of you with those three questions. Um, and so we're going to take moments for you just to sit quietly. Um, and, and just even as I'm speaking, if things are coming to you, feel free to write those down um, because we really want this to be a, a two-way dialogue between you and the Father. And so we're going to begin by talking about Egypt. The reality is that we all need to be delivered from our own personal Egypt. We all need to be delivered from our own personal Egypt. I think the deepest restlessness in the human soul is our desire to get back to Eden. If you know the story from Genesis that Adam and Eve chose their own strength over and above relationship with God and they were exiled from the garden. 
And I think that exilic spirit lives on in the human family, that there's something deep within us that knows that there's a place called home, and we want to do anything that we can to get back to that place, which is intimacy with God. It's finding our true place in the world. The problem is, for us as human beings, we try to get back to Eden on our own terms. We come up with the strategies and the plans well, if I just had, if I had more stuff, if I could provide for myself a little bit better, then I'm going to be able to be okay and to find Eden. If I can, you know, find the right structure, the right support group among other people, if I can have the right systems in place, then maybe I can find my way back to Eden and answer those deepest questions within myself. But what happens so often is that as we're wandering about trying to find our way back to Eden, we end up stumbling back into Egypt. What do I mean by that? You see, throughout the story of Israel, whether it was in the desert, even when they entered into the promised land, God was always challenging them on this temptation that they had to just go back. You know, maybe you remember the stories when they're in the desert and going, gosh, maybe we just need to go back to Egypt. At least we were fed there. At least we were taken care of. And that, and that never really changed in Israel's story, even when they inherited the land that God gave for them. And there's this amazing passage in Isaiah 30 where God is speaking through his prophet and really challenging them on that temptation to go back to where they came from in order to answer those questions about provision and protection and power. And God says to them this, woe to the obstacles children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. And Yahweh is challenging Israel. You, you want to go back. You think that it's easier to go to Egypt, to look to Pharaoh, to give you confidence, to give you structures, to give you explanations for how the world works. And how do we understand Egypt in our own personal terms when we feel that temptation, when things don't seem to be working out for us as Christians on the journey through the wilderness? And we go, man, it was better back in the day. It was, it was, maybe it was better when I just gave myself over to these systems. And a lot of times, our own personal Egypt is defined by our desire for self-reliance. We grow up in a culture that teaches us, no, it's all about you growing up and, and getting the good job and being self-reliant and having enough money and buying the house in the cul-de-sac with the white picket fence and the garage that you can drive right into so you don't have to see any of your neighbors. And it's all about self-reliance and, and, and having everything you need and protecting yourself. We even talk about, in our culture, self-determination. That you, you have the freedom to, to find yourself who you think that you are. You're a blank slate. And so just pick up whatever works best for you. And what God is challenging Israel, I think, is the same thing he's challenging us when we have this temptation to look back at Egypt. He says, all of the illusion of self-reliance and self-determination and, and, and defining who you think you are is actually a form of slavery. You see, the word in the Old Testament for, uh, for Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim, and it literally translates to the narrow place. And it's often in contrast, it's also in, in, in contrast to this idea of being brought into wide open spaces. Because for Israel, 
Egypt was the place of being squeezed, of being contained, of being oppressed. And I think for us, our own personal Egypt sometimes is, is the spaces in which we feel squeezed by expectations, whether they're expectations we have on ourselves or that society around us has on us. We feel squeezed by narrow-mindedness, that it can only look like this, that God can only move in this way, that provision for me must look like this. And what happens so often when we give in to the lies of our own personal Egypts is that we become oppressed by feeling that squeeze of how we've defined the world or how we've defined ourselves, but we also become the enslavers because it's so easy for oppressed people to become oppressors. If we only know the place of being squeezed by expectations and narrow-mindedness, that's what we put back out into the world. When we begin to recognize our own personal Egypt, the thing that's holding us tight, that's the thing we project onto other people. And we actually try to enslave other people to our way of doing things. We try to enslave other people to our expectations and our demands and our sense of control. And I think this is what's so powerful when we begin to name what that really is for each one of us, because it's going to be a little bit different. To leave Egypt is to leave behind oppressive dreams, expectations, and addictions that make us rely on ourselves and our systems rather than on God. I think self-sufficiency when it masquerades as spirit-given self-control is the most dangerous slavery of all. Let me say that again. Self-sufficiency and self-determination is the most dangerous form of slavery that is out there because we play into our own illusions of freedom. We think we're free because we have the right to determine who we are and how we provide for ourselves but we're enslaved by our own desires. We're enslaved by our own definitions. And so we just want to take a moment, and I'm going to pray, and I want you to ask that question of the Lord. What, in this moment right now in your life, March 3rd, 2019, at 11.20 a.m., what is your Mitzrayim? What's the narrow place that you find yourself in right now? What's the squeeze that you feel in your own life, that constriction, that if you're really honest, isn't actually a place of safety, it's a place of oppression. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to just dialogue with the Lord. Father, we know that you call us out of Egypt. You hear the cry of the oppressed, and by compassion, you move to deliver us. But God, sometimes we have the temptation to go back to Egypt, We have the temptation to enter back into a form of slavery to our own expectations, to our own systems. And God, each one of us in some way are probably being held back and squeezed by something in that realm. So would you speak to us right now about what our own personal Egypt looks like? It's a dangerous and beautiful thing to begin to realize what we are enslaved by what is squeezing us. Sometimes it's embarrassing. 
Sometimes it's painful because we are the ones that have, have, have built the box around us. But it's also this beautiful moment of us being open to receive God, not as we'd like him to be, but as he truly is. And that becomes the place for us to really test how much do we trust God to deliver us? How much do we trust God to lead us into freedom? So that brings us to the second place, that God hears the cry of the oppressed in Egypt, and he draws them out of Egypt. He rescues them. He delivers them. But he brings them into the desert. They're actually in the wilderness for 40 years. A whole generation comes and goes while they're in the desert. Even we know in the story of Moses, think about this. He's 40 years in Egypt. He runs out into the wilderness for 40 years. God calls him back to be his instrument of deliverance for the people. He leads them for like 39 and a half years, and he kind of messes up, and he can see it, but he can't enter into it. So that sucks, you know? <laughs> Praise be to God that we have Jesus, right? That our full deliverance is found in him. So what is it that we can say maybe about this idea of being led from Egypt into the wilderness? We need to wander the desert to learn to trust God's heart for us. And so time and again in the Old Testament, God uses this language of the desert, the wilderness, not as a way of saying, I'm punishing you or you're misbehaving, so I'm going to beat you up, but to say, Remember that the time of the wilderness is the space in which I'm inviting you to learn how to really rely on me, to come out from under that illusion of self-reliance or self-definition, and to come out into the desert and to say, how do I learn to rely on you? How do I allow you to define who I really am? There's this amazing line in Psalm 81 that I come back to so often in my own prayer. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And he does this time and again through the prophets and through the Psalms. God is saying to the people, remember who I am. I brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who delivered you. I'm the one who rescued you. And then he says, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you through the wilderness. And that's still true. I have still delivering you from Egypt, and I'm still inviting you into the wilderness so that you might open wide your mouth and allow me to fill it. You see, Israel had to be brought through that desert season in order to be humble, to learn to rely on God, because they were an abused and oppressed people. They had no identity. They did not know who they were, and they needed a season of God teaching them who they are in light of his love so that when they finally got to the pro promised land, it would be a benefit of their relationship with God and not a substitution for it. And I think this is the power of the wilderness. When you're in the desert, there are no other options for you to learn how to rely on yourself. There's nothing else there. It's just you and the Lord. And it almost becomes this testing period. You know, it's easy in the comfortable lives that we live to fall into that illusion of self-reliance. We have refrigerators full of food. We have air conditioning. We have comfy beds. You know, we have decent jobs that help to provide all of those things. And they're not bad in and of themselves, but when they become these idols where we have this illusion that we've earned our place in the world, we've earned the right to determine who we are, and how we, how we can provide for ourselves. 
we slowly find that those gifts from the Lord become Egypt. They become oppressive. And so sometimes God brings us into the wilderness. And just like Israel, we spit and we fuss at him and we get mad and we say, this is not loving. This is not kind. You're mean. And he keeps saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. You know, if the word for Egypt, Mitzrayim, meant the narrow place, the word for wilderness, Midbar, means the place of conversation. Let that sink in for a moment. When you see the word wilderness, it means the place of conversation, where all the noise, where all the chatter, where all the illusions stop, and it's just you and God. And he says, now do you want to talk? Now do you want to hear what I have to say? I love this quote from Paul Miller. He says, God takes everyone he loves through a desert. It's his cure for our wandering hearts restlessly searching for a new Eden. The best gift of the desert is God's presence. And how many times have I told you, family, that sometimes we hold the gifts of God over the presence of God? We more define our relationship with him by what he's giving us more than his actual presence, more than relationship, that God is a giant vending machine in the sky that gives us whatever we need. And for many of us, that's how we started our journey with God. He, and, that's, and that's a good place to be when we're, when we're young Christians, when we're learning how to rely on him. But then all of a sudden, when we wander into the desert, we wonder why there's no longer a giant vending machine in the sky that gives us everything we need all the time. But it's because God is leading us into a new way of trusting him, a new way of conversing with him, a new way to discover his character, but in ways that we never thought were possible because it's not spoon-fed to us anymore. The protective love of the shepherd gives me courage to face the interior journey. Why does God welcome us into the wilderness? Why does he enter us into the desert? Because if we were to go from Egypt to the promised land, we would just turn the promised land into a new Egypt. If we skipped the wilderness, if we forgot the space in which God is inviting us to learn to trust on him over and above our immediate needs, we'll enter into the promised land and we'll just turn it into a new Egypt. And we see this in the story of Israel. They're going, God, okay, what does it look like? What can we expect? And here's the things that I need from you. And it's going to be great. And here we are. Here's the plan. And I've already written out all my expectations for the promised land. Here you go. If you can get that to me in three to five business days. And God's response to Israel in the desert is, I love you. I want you to trust me. I want you to listen to me. I want you to follow me. And they say, no, no, no. What are the expectations? What's it going to look like? Let me tell you what I need it to be. And God says, I love you, and I want you to listen to my voice, and I want you to learn how to follow me. Because by definition, if we step into the promised land that God has given us without recognizing first and foremost God's presence in our lives, it's never really the promised land. How many of you think, you know, you, you feel those moments where God has offered you something, he's fulfilled a promise, but you forgot to bring him with you in it, and that thing becomes slavery, that dream 
that expectation just becomes more slavery to you because you forgot. You forgot to listen to him. You forgot to recognize that first and foremost, the primary promise God gives us is to be with us and for us. And it's from that promise all the other promises ripple. So to choose into the desert experience with God is to rid ourselves of illusions and to place ourselves in his daily mercies. Sometimes you choose the desert and sometimes the desert chooses you, but either way, to recognize that God is calling you out from under your illusions of self-sufficiency, that you know what you're talking about, that you know how the world works, and instead to learn to rely on his daily mercies. As Israel was in the desert, they're, you know, they immediately start complaining. Grumble, 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 right? Just like us. And they, would need, they, need, they need provision. God, are you going to provide for us? And so what does he do? He sends manna. And I love the word manna just means, what is it? That's literally what the word means. What is it? It's kind of like cornflakes, if anybody's wondering. And there's a really great episode of Ancient Aliens, season nine, that talks about how it was actually this machine that the aliens gave the Israelites. Whatever. We won't get into that. Talk to me after. But it's literally, it's daily. And God says, you can't, it's just, it's going to come every morning exactly what you need, and you can't save it. And they go, yeah, okay, but seriously. And they go around, and they're gathering it up in baskets. And what happens to it? Like, in 24 hours, it's rotted, and it's gone. And they come stamping back to God. We need provision. We need provision. He says, okay, here's your manna for the day. Here it is. He provides them quails just for that day. And they, it's so hard for them to recognize that God's provision is not in giving them the life plan. God doesn't give them the five-year plan. God doesn't give them the booklet that says, just do all of these things and I'll check back with you in 30 years and make sure that you're staying on track. He says, no, I'm going to give you exactly what you need for today and today only. Because when you learn in the wilderness to rely on God for what you need that day, eventually you will stop fighting him. Eventually, you will stop scheming to try to provide for yourself. Eventually, you will stop taking the promises of God and hoarding them and trying to walk away and to do it on your own terms. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah says, you know, the great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. And it's that manna language. It's that quail language. God's mercies are new every morning. But do we wake up every morning with this expectation of receiving just what we need for that day? And does not Jesus himself teach us how to pray this? Give us today our daily bread. He doesn't say, give us the five-year plan. He doesn't say, give me the program. He didn't say, give me, give me the job, give me the family, give me the community or whatever it is so that I can go and do it on my own terms. He teaches us how to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. And when we begin to realize that the new mercies of God are not his cruelty, but his kindness to re-educate us, to rehabilitate us from this illusion of self-sufficiency, then we begin to realize what God is actually inviting us to in the wilderness. One of the disciplines that we speak of in the Christian household that helps us into this period is fasting. And there are a lot of disciplines that we're invited to that are more about clearing space 
than taking anything up. It's more about emptying ourselves than it is about filling us just with more data, more information, more static. One of my uh, favorite writers on the planet, Dan Allender, who does not mince words, if any of you are familiar with his work, says this, fasting from any nourishment, activity, involvement, or pursuit for any season sets the stage for God to appear. Fasting is not a tool to pry wisdom out of God's hands or to force needed insight about a decision. Let's just sit with that one for a second. How many times in the wilderness do we come to God and go, all right, here's the plan, God. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to do 30 minutes of quiet time, and then you're going to answer me on this. And what are we doing? It's still control, control, control. God, I need you to, to come through with me in my narrow expectations. that This is what you're going to do, and this is what you're going to show me. And if I do my part, then you have to come through and do yours. But we're not really fasting because we're not really giving up self-sufficiency and self-control. We're just projecting that onto God. He goes on, fasting is not a tool for gaining discipline or developing piety, whatever that might be. Instead, fasting is the bulimic act of ridding ourselves of our fullness to attune our senses to the mysteries that swirl in and around us. Fasting is about us giving up control, of creating the space, of being open-handed to allow God to actually reveal himself, not as we need him to be or we think that we do, but as he truly is. And to believe that the way in which he reveals himself to us is far greater and far more beautiful than anything that we could come up to in our own terms. And so we're going to take a second moment to reflect. We've asked God to define our mitzrayim, the thing that squeezes us, the narrow place. But now, what does the place of conversation look like? How can I create midbar in my life? Or maybe you're already in it right now and you just didn't know that's what it's called. How can I create space for God to speak? Is there something currently cluttering my ability to know God that I need to fast from? And so, Father, again, would you alight upon your dear ones here with your Holy Spirit? Reveal to us in very practical terms what is something in our lives that's clogging us up, that's making us full, that reveals us to be a certain kind of glutton that you're asking us to let go of so that we might meet you as you truly are, that we might hear your voice as you truly speak. God, we're no longer content to just rely on our way of doing things because it's not working. We're not satisfied. We're not free. The desire to grow needs to outweigh the desire to stay the same. And that can only come by hearing your voice calling us out into the desert, of you preparing the way for us to enter into your presence. And so we've invited the Lord to reveal to us our own personal Egypts, what, what we're being squeezed in our lives. We've invited the Lord to show us what does that wilderness look like for us? What are the things that are holding us back? Our expectations, our addictions, our coping mechanisms, whatever they might be that are 
keeping us in this illusion of self-sufficiency. And that brings us to the last piece of being able to have a vision for what the promised land really looks like, which is another way of saying, what does it really look like for you and I to be free people? What does it really mean for us to step into the freedom that God is giving us? Because so what, this is what happens to us so often, and tell me if I'm right. We might enter into that wilderness and we start accusing God of being mean to us, and we hunker down even tighter into our illusions of self-sufficiency. Say, no, 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 God, I get to define who I am. I get to define what I do. And we, we redouble our efforts. If I could just do this even better, if I could just be even stronger, if I could just fight for my right to, to, to be whatever I want, and we find ourselves digging our heels deeper in to Egypt. And the reality is God is so loving and so kind, he will not drag us out of Egypt, but he will always beckon us to step out of that place. And that means that we might be in a season where we are identityless, where we don't know who we are, where we don't know what we're called to do, what we don't know where we're called to be, because all of our dreams are falling apart. All of our expectations are being shattered. And there's this very holy and sacred space of not knowing, of feeling confused, of feeling even dried up that makes us question the character of God. But if we are willing to stick through it, we find that he speaks to us in far greater terms of what freedom will truly look like for us in that space. And so when we learn to trust God's goodness, we will find the freedom we were created for. What does it mean for God to be good? I think it comes back to those questions. Will he really provide for me? Will God genuinely protect me so that I don't have to rely on myself? Will God actually empower me, or is it better for me to just see if I can get my own little slice of the pie? Coming back to that passage in Isaiah 30 where God is challenging Israel and saying, hey, uh, you're not conspiring with me. You're not living according to my spirit. You're not allowing me to lead you. You keep trying to run back to Pharaoh. You keep trying to run back to Egypt, to, to the systems that you think are going to protect you, the systems you think are going to define you, but I'm welcoming you to trust me. And he says this in verse 15, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In turning back to me, of changing the way that you think, of changing your assumptions, in learning how to rest with me is your salvation. In quietness and in trust is your strength. It's not in being busy. It's not in earning. It's not in trying harder. It's in quietness and trust. And you can hear the voice of pain in the Father's heart when he says, but you would have none of it. And that's the challenge for each one of us. Do we want to keep running back to Egypt? Or do we want to enter into that desert knowing that God is going to reveal himself to us in ways that we never thought possible? Because freedom is found in being open before God, in trusting that he is good, and by definition, wherever God leads you is good. Wherever God leads you is good because he is good. And the promised land will probably not look the way that you thought it would. 
And I would challenge you, do not enter into the wilderness and try to craft your own promised land. Be open-handed in your expectations. Do not say to him, God, this is what it needs to look like. Because that is still you not trusting God to lead you. That's still you maintaining a sense of self-control that's actually self-sufficiency. That you're in charge and that God is your giant vending machine in the sky. And so what I'm challenging all of us for the next 40 days is can we be a people who create the space in our lives and then ask the Lord to fill it? Can we do that together? And so the final moment of reflection, is there a specific discipline that I can take up for 40 days? Not to be a pious person, not to be a disciplined person, not to try to get God to to dance for you, but is there a discipline that you can take up through the season of Lent that attunes you to his presence, that just gets you into the space to begin to listen, that takes you out into the desert where you have no options except to rely on him? All your coping mechanisms, all your addictions, they're going to be left behind in Egypt. And so, Father, begin to speak to us now. Give us a sense of divine creativity to recognize what you might be inviting us to take up in this next season that helps us to just learn to attune to you. Not in the ways that we think that we need you to show up, but in the ways that you actually want to speak, to move. Teach us that open-handedness that only the desert can, can show. of you. We want to know you. We don't want to try to exist on the rumors of what you were like 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. We want to know you here and now. And that requires a lot of trust. And that trust can come from you. Thank you, Jesus. So I want to invite you to stand. You can continue to write if you're in some dialogue with the Lord. That's okay. But I want you to invite you to stand and as we worship to continue to allow the Lord to illuminate those things, to, to, to strip them off of you, to reveal to you your, your Egypt, to recognize the call into the desert to learn to rely on him, to believe that you can actually hear him and to see what he wants to do. So as we worship, just remain open and present to him. See what he wants to speak. See what he wants to invite you to. May we all enter into the promised land together, not on our own terms, but on his.
been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.